in order to understand the book of Nahum, we got to start with a little bit of background. The overall message is God's judgment on the Assyrian Empire, specifically the capital of, Nir, uh, the capital of Nineveh, and the destruction of Nineveh. Um, it's kind of ironic because a lot of times you'll find Jewish names are significant. And Nahum means comforter. And yet he's telling them, you're about ready to be destroyed. Um, it's ironic, though, because if you look at who else the audience is, in chapter 1 specifically, it's the children of Judah. And what would be more comforting than knowing that your enemy is done for? And uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit here as well. Um, if you go to uh, Nahum chapter 1, <clears throat> I think I said something about this the last time I was in here. It's a lot easier to find it on my phone than it is uh, on the book here. So uh, just bear with me one second. I even have the little tabs. You'd think I'd be faster. But Nahum chapter 1, um, we see the burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkoshite. And you'll see there in, my, in the notes that Elkoshite, they're not real, uh, there's several scholars that believe different things regarding that. So it could mean that he was from a small village about 25 miles north of M Mosul. And uh, there's actually a tomb there that they will tell you is the tomb of Nahum. Um, it could also mean that, uh, er, and if he was in there, it would also mean he was part of the uh, tribe of Israel or the kingdom of Israel that had been taken captive and brought into captivity. Um, it could be Capernaum, which stands for the village of Nahum. He could have been from there. Or it could have been from Judah. Or from Elkis, which is about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. So I tell you all that to tell you we really don't know where he's from. A lot of different theories, but... It could be any one of those. Um, do we do know the time frame of this is between 663 and 612 BC? We know this because in 663 BC is when Thebes or the city of No or Noanon would fall, and it's mentioned in chapter 3. Um, so we know it had to be after 663, and it, because we know it's before 612, because 612 is when uh, Nineveh will fall. So we know uh, that's why we know that it's in that date period. Um, the audience here is primarily Assyria, or specifically the city of Nineveh. Now, it is also spoken to Judah, hence the Nahum being the comforter. And we're going to see why it's comforting to know that Assyria is gone here as we go th uh, through some of the background here on this. So, some information about Assyria. They ruled the Middle East from about 900 B.C. through 612 B.C. And they, uh, so they ended up conquering pretty much all of the land around, and they were in charge. Um, you know, later on, they'd be followed by Persia, by Babylon, by Rome, by Greece. Um, this was, you know, one of the earlier uh, empires that would take over the Middle East. Um, and when we say that they were in charge, we're not just talking about militarily, but, you know, they were the art capital of the world. They were the uh, trade capital of the world. They were an economic power. Um, they were very wealthy, not just from the trade, but from all the lands they conquered. They took the stuff. They took their tre treasures. Um, they made Israel, the northern kingdom, pretty much barren because they took all the treasures out of uh, the worshiping places that they had. Um, you would also see um, they are a dominant force in religion. Oftentimes, when you see Israel being carried away by other gods, it's one of their gods. Um, so... They were one of the centers of religion. Um, as I said, an economic superpower. Um, and Nineveh was specifically the capital city. 
Now, Nineveh, when we think of like a, capital, or a powerful city, I, I think of like Jericho when I think of walled cities, because obviously that's one of the big ones here. Nineveh was even more impressive when it comes to a walled city. They say the walls were about seven to eight miles uh, long, and they could fit three chariots on the top. That's how wide they were. So you're talking about some really large and fortified walls. Not only were they fortified with these huge walls, but they also had towers from which they could defend from. They had forts spread out among, around the city to be able to defend oncoming uh, anybody who wanted to try to take them on. And they had a moat. They had, the city was surrounded by water. That's part of how they managed to get water into, into, the, uh, into um, the Nineveh. Um, was through these moats and things. So if you're talking about a, defend, a defended and a fortified city, Nineveh would be at the top of the list. They would be even more so than Jericho. And so in the mind, this is the world's, also the world's biggest military power. A fortified city of a world-conquering power, and Nahum's told, you're going to tell them that their time has come. Judgment has come. Ain't nobody going to believe what Nahum has to say starting out. Um, I want you guys, when we talk about uh, this being a world power, uh, they'd taken out most of the capitals of the Middle East, including Israel in 722 or 721, and Egypt somewhere between 673 and 663, um, is when Egypt officially fell. Um, one of the cool things, though, is if you recall, they surrounded the city of Judah. And in 2 Kings... Um, 18, or chapter 18, verse 13 through chapter 19 through 63, you see them, they will take over the city and they will surround the city and they start mocking God. Hezekiah told you not to worry that we can't get you, but look at every other city that's had the same thought. We took them and then we took their gods and we're going to do the same thing to you. One commentary posed that they thought it might have been a Jewish apostate who was yelling these things because he seems to know well about Judaism and about their God, and he, they seem to know well about uh, Hezekiah and things that, and he speaks in Hebrew, in the, it says in those uh, verses. So one commentary at least thought that uh, the, he might have been a, an apostate Jew. Um, we also know that they were exceptionally cruel, exceptionally cruel. Uh, I got a couple things on here. First off, when we think of like a conquered city, we probably think of Rome, right? Because that's the more recent one. And even today, we don't tend to deport people who you've beaten. When we beat Germany and Japan in World War II, we didn't deport Japan and the Germans all over the world. We sent troops in to take over and to occupy. That's not what the Assyrians did. Just like the Babylonians will later, they will deport people throughout the world, throughout their empire. They will deport people... Um, and you think about it, say, why, what's the purpose of deporting someone? Which one are you more likely to defend? A country you grew up in, a country you know well, a country that you know where you could hide, where you could do good, or make an attack, or are you going to be better or not be able to do that in a land that you have no clue? You don't know where the water is. You don't know where the good hiding spots would be. You don't know where it would be good to attack somebody. So they deported them, just like you would see, we'll see in Babylon as well. But when I say they're exceptionally cruel, I've got a couple of examples here. They would take conquered kings and bring them back to Nineveh, and they would stick them on cages and hang them from the city wall to die 
and to be watched and mocked and scorned. They took former kings and rebels and they would flay them alive and then hang their uh, skin from city walls to deter any more rebellions. They would cut their tongues out. And these are the ones I felt comfortable mentioning. So when I say they were cruel, I'm not exaggerating. They were among the cruelest uh, out there. We see also um, they starved and taxed those they left behind or moved. When they uh, deport, uh, deported them, they would put them in uh, places and they would uh, tax them and so they had basically nothing left. And uh, you'll even see Nahum talk about this, that they fill their coffers overflowing. When I said they were an economic power, yes, trade did go through Nineveh. But so did taxes. So did the wealth of all the countries they conquered. It wasn't just because they worked hard. So they were an exceptionally cruel people. And when you look at Nahum, maybe you guys remember Jonah. And maybe you're thinking, well, John, why, why haven't you mentioned Jonah? Because Nineveh repented under Jonah, right? Well, as so often is the case, the next generation went back to the old ways. And we can see that throughout uh, Kings and Chronicles when you go through with just the children of Israel. You'll have a good king, and then his son will immediately go back to the old ways. And we see the same thing here. When I was reading through it, it made me laugh because I thought to myself, Jonah really wishes he was Nahum. Because Nahum gets to pronounce the destruction. He gets to tell him, you're done for. And what is Jonah complaining about in chapter 3 of Jonah? Lord, you're, you, you, made him, you let him repent. I wanted, to, I wanted to watch their judgment. So I think it's a little ironic that uh, Jonah, 100 years later, he gets his wish. But uh, he, he wasn't the one who got to pronounce the uh, doom of Nineveh and Assyria. I've got a brief outline here for the book of uh, Nahum. And... Uh, We'll kind of go through some of these verses and highlight some of them. It's only three chapters, but I just didn't feel like we had time to read the entire book and kind of go through each one. But um, you can see here in chapter one, God is jealous. Um, we'll see this here, and uh, we'll just kind of read through. And frankly, we've got enough time. We might end up reading most of the book anyway. Um, it's really a short book. And you're going to see that with a lot of these minor prophets. Now, if you tried to get up here and do some of the other, or you know, something like Habakkuk, I think, has 11 chapters, might take me a little bit much to do in one night, um, but to read. But with Nahum, it's only a couple pages long. So uh, let's look here. We see in chapter one, it says, the, um, we see that God is a jealous God, and he declares here Nineveh's doom. Start in verse one. The burden of Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkshite. God is jealous, and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebuketh the sea and maketh it dry and dryeth up all the rivers. Bashan languisheth it, languish, and Carmel, the flower of Lebanon, languisheth. The mountains quake at him and the hills melt, and the earth is burned at his presence, yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Who can stand before his indignation and who can abide in the fierceness of his anger? His fury is poured out like fire and rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. But with an overrunning flood, he will make an utter end of the place thereof. Darkness shall pursue his enemies. 
So we see here that um, God uh, he declares his anger. He says he's a jealous God. He says that he has the power to shut down or to do whatever he wants with the weather, whether it's a whirlwind um, or it's uh, rebuke at the sea and make it dry. He can cause famines. He can cause earthquakes. He can cause uh, volcanoes to spew. He's saying here, I can do all of that, or God can do all of that here, and he's angry. And then um, we see in verses 9 through 11 and verse 14, we see God speaks to the city of Nineveh. What do ye imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up at the second time. For while they be folded together as thorns, and while they are drunken as drunkards, they shall be devoured as stubble fully dry. There is one come out of thee that imagineth evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. Thus the Lord, though they be quiet, thus saith the Lord, though they be quiet, and likewise many, yet thus shall they be cut down. When he shall pass through, though I have afflicted thee, I will afflict thee no more. For now I will break his yoke from off thee, and I will burst thy bonds in asunder. In asunder. Verse 13 there and verse 12 are to the tribe of Judah. He's saying, you're done being afflicted by this empire. They're done. And the Lord hath given a commandment concerning thee that no more of thy name be sown out of the house of thy gods. While I cut off the graven image and the molten image, I will make thy grave, for thou art vile. And he, verse 14, he's talking again, once again, to uh, Nineveh. In verse 15, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. And we see there in verses 12 through 13 and verse 15, God encourages Judah. Um, so we see a couple things here in verse, um, verses 9 through 15 there. He's saying to Nineveh, what do you imagine uh, against the Lord? You know, uh, when you think about when they had surrounded Judah, when they had surrounded the city of Jerusalem, there's that guy there yelling to him, don't believe Hezekiah, your God ain't going to protect you. Look at all these other gods we've conquered. And Nahum here says, what do you imagine against the Lord? He will make an utter end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. And here we see where he talks, tells us about the destruction of Nineveh. And verse uh, 13, for now I will break his yoke from off thee, and I will burst thy bonds in sunder. God's telling Judah, it's done. You've been afflicted by them for more than a couple centuries. It's now done. And I like verse 15 there. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace. Um, when we think about this, you have to remember there's no uh, newspaper in Jerusalem. There's no Jerusalem Times. There's no internet. There's no iPhones or droids or whatever you have. The way news was spread was by somebody coming and telling you. And Nahum says, blessed is the person who comes and gives good news. He's bringing some good news. That country that's been terrorizing us, the country that we've had to pay tribute to, the country that took our brethren in the northern kingdom, they're done. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that bringeth good things, that publisheth peace. By the way, that can be us today too. Nahum was talking about the end of Assyria, was the end of the, um, per, uh, the, per, per, uh, the, uh, the people that were trying to destroy them. Today, we get to tell people about Jesus. Today, we get to publish the news that 
Jesus has come and he's died for our sins and he rose again, defeating death, hell, and the grave. And none of us have to do that. None of us have to die and go there anymore because of what Jesus did. When's the last time you told somebody about that? I've had to ask myself that same question as I've been studying this book. When's the last time I shared the gospel? We need to be more like Nahum in publishing the good news. Um, you'll next see there in uh, Nahum chapter 2, uh, God is a ju- is judge and Nineveh's doom is described. By the way, we're going to get into the first part about God being jealous in, um, at the end. Um, and we saw that in verse 2 where it says, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. But here we're going to see God is judge, and we're going to see Nineveh's doom described. Um, in verses 1 through 4, we see invaders appear in advance. He that dasheth in pieces has come up before thy face. Keep the munition, watch the way, make thy loins strong, fortify thy, thy power mightily. For the Lord hath turned away the excellency of Jacob as the excellency of Israel. For the empty ears have emptied them out and marred their vine branches. The shield of his mighty men is made red. The valiant men are scarlet, by the way. If you aren't sure who God roots for in football, the mighty men, or the valiant men are scarlet. O-H-I-O. <laughs> You're welcome. Um, verse, uh, and continuing there. The chariot shall be with flaming torches in the day of his preparation, and the fir tree shall be terribly shaken. The chariot shall range, rage in the streets. They shall jostle one against another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. So we see here the invaders are coming. They're coming so quickly that the chariots are busting against each other to get there first. This isn't a, a pleasant picture that he's uh, saying here. Um, and we can see that here. And then in uh, verses 5 through 10, we see the capture of Nineveh. He shall recount his worthies. They shall stumble in their walk. They make haste to the wall thereof, and to the defense shall, be, shall he be prepared. Saying here that he's going to go to his generals. The king's going to go to his generals. He's going to go to those around him. The people he's trusted for all these years to ask him for help. And they know the end is coming, and they're just going to be defeated. And verse 6, the gates of the river shall be opened, and the palace shall be dissolved. Um, we know from history that part of the fall of Nineveh, after being surrounded by this thick wall, was through the water gates. Apparently there was a massive flood that came supernaturally, and it caused the gates and the walls to get messed up. With those gates and walls being messed up, it led a perfect way for the enemy to come in to destroy Nineveh. We see that in verse 6 and then in verse 7. And Huzzab shall be led away captive and shall be brought up, and her maid shall lead her as with the voice of doves tabering upon their breasts. But Nineveh is, like, oh, er, is of old like a pool of water, yet shall they flee away. Stand, stand, shall they cry, but none shall look back. Take ye the spoil of silver, take the spoil of gold, for there is none end of the store and glory out of all the pleasant furniture. She is empty and void and waste. The heart melteth, and the knees smite together, and much pain is in all her loins, and the faces of all them all gather blackness. Saying at the end, they won't have any spirit left in them. They're going to be defeated, and they're going to be utterly defeated. And we see that in in it being captured, and then we see Nineveh get taunted once again. Nineveh, if you look at their art and things, they are known as a lion, and a lion is a very important part of, who, uh, of describing uh, Nineveh. And verse 11, where is the dwelling of the lions? 
in the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion, even the old lion, walked, and the lions whelp, and none made them afraid. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps, and the str- strangled for his lionesses, and filled his holes with prey, and his dens with raven, or ravine. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke. And the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messenger shall no more be heard. When Nineveh was destroyed, it was utterly destroyed. Um, it wasn't until archaeologists, I believe it was in the early 1800s, finally found the remnants of the city. Um, I was reading when um, Alexander the Great went and conquered the lands, he passed right by Nineveh, not even knowing that it had been a world capital. This is only, only a couple hundred years later. It's not like we're looking at, you know, a thousand years. We see here that when God destroyed it, he completely destroyed it. And then we see in chapter 3, um, Nineveh's doom is deserved. We see why they did it. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not. Um, it's described as a bloody city, but you see there it says it's full of lies and robbery. If you recall, when they were surrounding Judah, they made it sound like it was going to be a peaceful surrender. If you surrender, we'll take care of you, is what the guy said. Well, we know from history, when you surrendered to Assyria, it was not pleasant. It was not something to be enjoyed. It was not something to look forward to. Full of lies and robbery. Robbery being they, steal every, they stole everything that, from the people they conquered. And the prey departeth not. The noise of a whip and the noise of the rattling of the wheels and of the prancing horses and of the jumping chariots. The horsemen lifted up both spear and there is a multitude slain and a great number of carcasses. And there, is a, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses. Corpses upon corpses, their city is going to be filled with dead bodies. Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. By the way, you will see this throughout the Minor Prophets, where God can, uh, compares Israel or places he's judging to prostitutes because uh, they've forsaken God. Um, and you'll see that especially if you, when you get to Hosea um, and a couple of these other books. Uh, verse 5, Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will shew the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. And I will cast, cast abominable filth upon thee and make thee vile and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste, and who will bemoan her? Whence shall I seek comforters for thee? We see the ruthless bloodshed in verses 1 through 3, and then we see the idolatry, the worshiping of God and of power, the worshiping of treasures and money. And then in verse, uh, and then in verse 7, I do, I do think that's interesting. Who's going to bemoan thee? Who's, who's going to worry about you being gone? The answer is nobody. Nobody's going to miss Nineveh who wasn't in Nineveh. And verses 8 through 19, we finish off here. Verses 8 says, Art thou no better than the populace of No? No is also known as Noanon or uh, Thebes in Egypt. That was situate among the rivers that had the waters round about it, whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the, was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put in Lubum were thy, help, thy helpers. 
So he's saying, look at Thebes. They had even better positioning as regards to land and being able to defend the city. Look at Thebes. They had friends. And verse 10, yet was she carried away. By the way, she was carried away by the Assyrians, by Nineveh. She went to captivity. Her young children were also dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets. And they cast lots for her honorable men, and all, great, all her great men were bound in chains. They dashed her young children, or the young children were also dashed in pieces at the top of all streets. You want to know about the bloodiness of Assyria? You want to know about their cruelty? There's a perfect example. Killing children. Before we think we're better, we have a lot of that in the United States today. For, and then we saw here too, uh, they cast lots for her honorable men. They took the princes and they took the noble men in the cities, and specifically here in Thebes, they sold them into slavery. They cast lots who was going to take who and make them their slave. And all her great men were bound in chains. Thou also shall be drunken, thou shalt be hid, and also shall seek strength because of the enemy. All the strongholds shall be like fig trees with fi er, first-striped figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. So the first verse here, he talks about them being drunken. And uh, it's kind of interesting. The, the, um, the tales say that, there was, that the king got drunk the night before um, they were invaded and Nineveh fell, and he killed himself before then. And the fact that they mention it here, and it says, thy stronghold shall be like fig trees. I've never personally seen a fig tree, but apparently when they're ripe, all you have to do is give it a little shake and all the fig, ripe figs fall right off. And that's what he's saying here. It's going to be like a fig tree. The figs are going to come right off. That's how when they start to fall, it's going to be quick, just like t uh, taking fi if the figs off the tree. Verse 13, Behold thy people in the midst of thee are women, and gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee water for the siege. Fortify the strongholds. Go into clay and tread the border, make strong and thick hiln. He's being sarcastic here. In verse 13, when he says, behold thy people in the midst of thee are women, what that's saying is in battle, your, your soldiers are going to faint and be weary, and they're not going to fight, and they're going to lose their courage. And uh, that was just something that was said at that time. In verse 14, he's basically being sarcastic, saying, get ready for it. Do what you can to stop it. Um, but then, he then verse 15 says, There shall fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locust. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and fleeth away. Thy crowned are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria, Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear the brute of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath the, not thy wickedness passed continually. When he's being sarcastic, he says, get ready for it. Do what you can to fight it. But then he tells him, it doesn't matter. God's getting ready to destroy you. And you're going to see these noblemen and these people that looked strong and were tough, ready to fight. And they're not going to be there anymore. They're going to scatter like locusts and grasshoppers in the wind. So we did get through Dahum. I, 
didn't think we'd read the whole book, but we did. There are some things here, though, that are applicable to us. Because sometimes we look at these minor prophets, and that's one of the things I hope we uh, do a good job of this summer, is let's look at how they apply to us. They're not just history books. There's always something to pull that can speak to our hearts today. And so I've got four things here that uh, we can think about and we can learn from uh, the book of Nahum. The first one here is God is a jealous God. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 2, and I read it earlier, but God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. Now, some of you guys might be thinking like I do sometimes. Isn't jealousy a sin? We're not supposed to covet, right? We're not supposed to desire one another's things. That's where God's jealousy and our jealousy differ. God's jealous, when we're jealous, it's usually because I want something you have. Or you have some, or I have something that you want. It's probably more the other way around, but we, that's our jealousy. We get jealous because we don't have something out there that we really want. But God's jealousy is more regarding, um, it's a covenant jealousy. When God's jealous, it's being jealous for his people. Uh, one of the things I read, and I really liked it, I put the quote in there, God is not jealous of his people, but for his people. He's jealous for his people because he wants what's best for us. He knows a whole lot better than we do what we need. There are times where we think we want something, but God knows we don't need it because it's going to mess us up. God's jealous for his people. You can think of it another way. Think about a husband and wife. They're jealous for one another. The husband doesn't want his wife being with other men and vice versa. They're jealous for one another because they want to be there for each other. Same thing with God. He's jealous of his bride. That's us, the church. He wants what's best for us and he's got that covenant love and that, that's where he's jealous. And you will see throughout the Minor Prophets as we go through this, one of the things I learned is God will not share worship with other gods. Now, I don't know how many of you are like me, but before I really started, so we did a study of the Minor Prophets in the college class, and Nahum was one of the books I hadn't gotten to. But one of the things I'd noticed as we were going through them, I always thought when they forsook God, it meant they got rid of him. They no longer followed him. And they just followed Baal and Ashtaroth and Ishtaroth and all the, uh, all the other gods that are mentioned. But that's not the case. When you read through them, God is still there. It's just God and Baal. God and Ishtar. God and Ashtaroth. It's not that we get rid of God completely. It's just he's no longer the only one. He's no longer the one that everybody goes and trusts and turns to. Um, so we see this is going to be a recurring theme, and you're going to see this all the time. So when we think about this, don't think that they completely forsake God. It's just God plus. They look at God as the conquering God, the God who got them out of Egypt, the God who got them into the promised land. But he's not the God who worries about their crops. We've got to go to Balaam for that. He's not the God who worries about sickness. There's another God for that. He's not the God who worries about enemies in other lands. We've got another God for that. No, he's God. And he doesn't want to share it with anybody else. 
So when we think about that, yeah, we don't have other idols up here, do we? You're not going to see Baal up here. You're not going to see any of us bow down and worship him. But sometimes we do let other gods into our lives even today. Sometimes we corrupt our faith. We allow things of the world to tell us about God. You know, we're talking about God being a jealous God. When's the last time you actually heard somebody say that? Specifically, you can even say outside of our church. Oh, we know God is love, and praise the Lord for that. We know God is merciful, praise the Lord for that. We forget God is just. We forget that God is jealous. And we want to let the world dictate who God is to us when God's already explained who he is to us in God's word. So we see that God is a jealous God who's not going to let us share his worship, distort our worship of him. We also let other gods in our lives through activities or things that we allow into our lives and put ahead of us or put ahead of God. And I could go through a whole list of things here, but I'll let the Holy Spirit share that with you. Have you put things ahead of God? Next, we see here in verse uh, 7 that God is our protector. The Lord is good. Let's just stop there and think about that for a second. The Lord is good. You know, when we start thinking about all these other gods that we're going to read about and learn about, you couldn't say that about most of them. One of the things that blows my mind is uh, I, I, was going, I did a series in Acts 2, and I was looking at other gods. Man, the, gel, the, the Greek and the Roman gods in particular are like the worst forms of humanity that you can come up with. The things they did to each other and to humans is crazy. Our God's not like that at all. Our God is just good. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knoweth them that trust in him. Our God is a protector. When the storm is swirling around us, we can trust God. Matthew 6 tells us not to worry about tomorrow, that God will take care of us. Think about that in Nahum's day. I just put myself in Jerusalem. When we're surrounded by the world's biggest power and we can trust God, chariots, weapons, the terror of that's coming, and the people in Jerusalem were able to trust God. He's our protector. And he says he knows those who trust him. Uh, you know, if you look up the word know, some synonyms for that, he acknowledges, he advises, he answers, he considers. He's a familiar friend. Can you say that about God today? Do you go to him as a familiar friend? God is our protector. Third thing we see here is our God is omnipotent or all-powerful. We read in verses 4 through 6 how he controls the weather, how he controls earthquakes and volcanoes. He can cause famine. He can cause drought. He can also bless and send the rain. God is all-powerful. You know, the other thing I think we often forget, God is in control of the political world as well. Governments. Who's in charge? You know, one of the things you can rest assured, no matter who you vote for in the election, God is in control. God puts who he wants on the throne, or in America's case, the White House. 
We think it's all determined by us. And that's not me saying don't go vote, don't, you know, don't try to do righteously by your vote and who you uh, want to win. But what I'm saying is rest assured God's in control no matter what. And no matter the storm that swirls around, you know, you turn on the news anymore and it's just constant daggers at one side or the other. Each side taking shots at one another. We can rest assured God is in control. And despite all that goes around, we can trust the Lord. And he knows when we trust him. He's our familiar friend. But he controls the political makeup. And sometimes he allows evil to be in charge. He allowed Assyria to rule for 200 years. And as we talked about their cruelty, but God allowed them to be in charge. But the other part of that is no nation is beyond God's judgment. We talked about Assyria here. And uh, Nahum 3.8 asks, do you think you're better than the city of No? Do you think you're better than their population? No, you're not. And I say the same thing to us here in America today. We are the world power. We are the world economic force. But don't get too haughty. Don't get too high and mighty about it. If God can take down Nineveh, if God can take down Rome, if God can take down Thebes or Egypt or any other world power, he can take down the United States too. I don't mean that to be preaching doom and gloom up here because I do love, I love America. I think we have been a country that has tried to follow God. But when we forsake God, just like the children of Israel, judgment will come. So no nation is beyond God's judgment. And then finally, our God is both merciful and just. We were talking about how uh, we sometimes forget that our God is a jealous God. I think sometimes we also forget that he's a just God. But on the flip side of that, I'm thankful that he's also a merciful God. God will not spare, or God's judgment will eventually come. That judgment might come in the form of you repenting, or that judgment's going to come as his swift hand. You know, you think about the merciful and just part of Nineveh. You've got both of them here. You've got Jonah on the one hand. A century earlier was sent to Nineveh to tell them to repent. He told God no, and God had him swallowed by a whale and then spit up and said, the only way it's not happening again, the only way you're going to get out of my punishment, go do what I said. His mercifulness, his mercy. But then we have the flip coin, or flip side of the coin, and God says enough is enough. Judgment is coming, and that's what we see here in Nahum. Now, some of you might be asking this question. Why did it take so long? Why did it take so long for God to bring his wrath upon Nineveh and Assyria? I've mentioned a couple of the things they've done, and I've not gotten to the worst. And yet God let them around for 200 years. Let's finish by closing over to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter three. And I know I said first Peter, but hopefully you guys just read my notes. It's second Peter three. Because apparently I didn't. 
2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But beloved, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why did it take God so long? Keep in mind, to God, a thousand years is like a day. So if you look at it from that perspective, a couple hundred years really ain't that long. God is just, and God does have judgment, but he's also a merciful God who wanted to give Nineveh every possible chance to repent, every possible chance to turn. He had that line in the sand, and he did everything he could to keep them from crossing that line. But once they did, judgment and wrath came quick, and Nineveh was destroyed. I'm glad he's merciful to me. I'm glad that he's not willing that uh, I would perish, but that I came to repentance. And he does that for all of us. Sometimes judgment doesn't come right away. Maybe there's someone in your life who's driving you nuts. Maybe there's something that you see someone going against God and just shaking their fist at the Lord. And you're wondering, when is judgment coming? The Lord is long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish. And doesn't that always make one of the better stories when someone who's shaking their fist at God turns around and bows to him and repents? God wants to give us every chance to do that before judgment comes. So hopefully you guys learned a little something about Nahum tonight. We got one down, ten to go. And uh, I think that's uh, all, I, all we got. And uh, we're a few minutes early, so the growth groups might not be done if you're waiting for them or the kids. But uh, thank you for listening. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just thank you, God, for who you are, Lord. We thank you, God, for what we can learn from Nahum, Lord, and what he proclaimed, Lord, and things we can learn about you specifically. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would help us not to take your mercy for granted, Lord, and constantly push that mercy of yours. But, Lord, that we would remember, Lord, that you are also a just God, a jealous God. And, Lord, that you don't want us to fool around with things that we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be putting things ahead of you, Lord, but you want what's best for us, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to remember that. Lord, I thank you that you are long-suffering and you are willing to put up with the things we do wrong and that you're forgiving, Lord. Lord, I just pray, God, that you would be with each and every person here, Lord. I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would uh, just talk to us about this book the rest of the night, Lord. I pray for the future speakers, Lord, that you would uh, just help, Lord, these... Uh, these books that sometimes we skim through, sometimes we don't pay attention to, Lord, to just come alive, Lord, and that we might get a better understanding of who you are. Thank you for all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray.